Hello, my lovely people, and welcome back to The Fletcher Files, a Murder, She Wrote podcast with your host, Monty. So this week, we are on Season 1, Episode 3, Deadly Lady. First aired October 7th, 1984. IMDb says, A mysterious man who briefly stops by Jessica's house turns up dead, supposedly swept overboard during a hurricane before Jessica even met him. Ooh, the suspense of it all. So let's get right into this case file. So we start at Jessica's house. She is typing on her typewriter, Old Faithful, and the lights are flickering. There's obviously a really bad storm. And finally, she's praying that the lights don't go out, but they do. So she goes to light a candle. I'm wondering if her typewriter works without electricity. It's, you know what, it's possible. So maybe she can still type by candlelight. But there's a knocking at the door, and it's Ethan. He's coming to check in on Jessica and make sure she is safe. And he's about to head home, but he mentions that there's a boat out there, some crazy people. Um, but, you know, good luck to them. He's going home. And he drops the title. He says it's a real deadly lady out there. <laughs> so, you know, this storm is a bad one. So then we go, we're at the next morning, and of course, Jessica is out for her jog and saying hello to the townspeople. So she's down at the dock. And she's looking for Ethan. They said that the fisherman said Ethan was going to help a boat that got lost last night in the storm. So she said, I'll catch up with him later. And she goes on about her job. As she's coming up to her house, she sees this strange man cutting her hedges. Uh, side note, where did he get those hedge clippers? Okay, anyway. <laughs> well, seeing as no one in this town locks their doors, she probably had it in the shed. That was probably unlocked. So, because I know she didn't just have it out in her garden. She doesn't seem like the type to leave things where they lay. So he introduces himself as Ralph. He says that he is a hobo. But okay. <laughs> All right. And that he he needs something to eat, but he doesn't take out take handouts. He works for everything. So that's why he was trimming the bushes in hopes that um, – that work would get him food. So Jessica's like, well, okay, you know, I can definitely give you something to eat, but I don't really think there's much more that needs to be done around the house. And those bushes were fine, actually. He says, well, you know, the trim on the windows, actually the whole house could really use a an updated paint job. I'm like, really, sir? Hobo? Living on the street, allegedly? <laughs> I know you're trying to get work, but you don't have to be shady about it. <laughs> so they go inside, and I notice that he seems rather clean for someone who works to eat, right? So he's washing up, and he sees a copy of Jessica's book, one of her books. We don't know how many she's written at this point, but one of her books. And he flips it over, and he sees, he says, oh, I've read this book. It's really great. He flips it over to see a picture of the author, which, of course, is Jessica. He's like, oh, I had no idea, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. So she's like, yeah, you're full of it. I know that um, you're not a hobo, Ralph. 
Uh, one, that's a pre-publication book. It's not even out yet, so there's no way you could have read it. Two, although your clothes look worn, they are clearly well tailored. Now, mind you, these are casual clothes. So you have to be, you're probably rich, rich if your casual clothes are tailored that well. And finally, you have, well, I'm sorry, you have an imprint of a watch on your arm. So clearly you still wear a watch. And three, the term is Bowen, not Hoboen. Like, okay, Jessica, calling him out. Uh, as the podcasters over on Cabot Cove Confidential, one of my favorite podcasts, called Ralph a Fobo. I am adopting that term. It is perfect. Thank you, Damien and Jenny. Amazing. So he comes up with a new story, which Jessica clearly doesn't believe, but she's letting him go. He says that he worked for all these years. He was basically forced to retire and decided that he was going to see the world from the ground up. And he got the proverbial gold watch. Now, just from a quick glance of that gold watch, it looks very expensive, and I think that's what Jessica noticed as well, and that lends itself to her not believing this story that he's now come up with. But okay. So then she gets a call from Amos, which I think it's funny that he announces himself. She's lived in that town for years, as well as Amos. And he has a very distinct voice, but I guess it's polite to announce yourself um, when you're calling someone. So he says that there's some um, there there's some activity down at the dock. There may be a murder. So of course this is basically Jessica's bat signal <laughs> that trouble is afoot that she must help uh, solve. So. She goes, she throws on her jacket. Um, Ralph says, well, I can find some work to do outside if that's better. She says yes, although she leaves him and he's still in the house. Um, and besides the fact that her doors are unlocked, I think the neighbors would have saw everything they needed to see when she let him in the house originally. So if there was going to be talk, there was going to be talk. So... <laughs> I don't think he looked like the type that would be stealing. I don't think she was concerned about that. But I think just not having her neighbor see some random man in her home, even though she's a widow, but still, uh, it's a small town. Things get around. So she gets down to the dock, and Ethan and Amos are fighting to get a chance to tell what happened. Ethan is referring to the four sisters as little ladies, which, yeah, he, he's showing all of his cards here. And I didn't have a problem with Ethan in probably the first time I saw this episode and other episodes he's in, but it really struck a chord with me in this episode watching it back. So Ethan is like, it is impossible that these girls, these little ladies did anything. Amos, however, is completely suspicious about what happened. So Jessica's like, what happened? You guys are talking in circles. I don't know what's going on. Please tell me. So they finally tell her that 
the four sisters and their father were on a boat and um, that the father fell off, right? And so she wants to meet the lady so she can get the full story from them. So we meet them. First, we meet Nancy. She goes by Nan. She's a fashion designer, and I believe she's the youngest. Then we meet Maggie. Um, she says that she's read Jessica's books and that she's a, a fan. Then we meet Lisa Earl Shelby. Don't forget the Shelby. Her husband has been notified, and he is on his way, just so you know. <laughs> like, okay, calm down, lady. Then we meet Grace Earl Lamont. Now, she says, my husband has not been notified. He left years ago, so he will not be coming. <laughs> it's like, ooh, somebody is uh, bitter about that. Maybe you should just drop that name, too. <laughs> Seems like a tough subject. So anyway, so Grace tells the story with some help from Lisa. She says that they left Bridgeport, I'm guessing Connecticut, four days ago. And that um, the night of the storm, it was really bad. They were downstairs. They realized that their father was still up on deck. They went upstairs. Um, Lisa was talking to him. Next thing they know, this huge wave hit the boat, and he went overboard. And that they could not find him, and they have him presumed dead. They gave the specific longitude and latitude that they were at. Um, and to me, this story is way too specific for you to be telling me this when the night before your father got swept overboard, you don't seem concerned about getting a, a search party out to find him in case there was some chance that he was pushed onto land and is actually still alive. And it seemed way too rehearsed. Now, Ethan has no clue that this is rehearsed and because he does not believe that probably women at all, right, could have done, could have murdered or plotted to get rid of their father. Amos, who is still suspicious, and we find out why, he's like, yeah, that's interesting. Well, considering that you guys are about to inherit a $30 million uh, estate. And Lisa corrects him and says, uh-uh, a hundred million dollars. So he is like, yeah, these girls got rid of their father at, so they could get this money. And I don't know if he realizes that their story is rehearsed, but he wasn't going to believe anything they said other than we murdered our father, which, you know what? Amos has a lot of issues, but he is right on point to be suspicious of these sisters and this story. Jessica clearly knows that this story is not correct. Now, she doesn't know why, but she knows that this, this story is rehearsed. But she doesn't, I don't think she knows who killed the father as yet. So she's holding her cards close to her chest and just watching how this plays out whether it was all four, one of them, two of them, or three of them, she knows that they are in something deep. So as they're leaving, um, Ethan is still on Amos about how dare he believe that these little ladies would kill their father. 
and he said, Ethan says, Amos, you've been reading too many of Jessica's books, which is shade to Jessica, for one. And two, <laughs> Amos says, uh, yeah, right. I don't, all you know, I haven't read any of her books. <laughs> well, honestly, I don't think Amos reads any books, to be honest. Maybe a police manual or something like that. Definitely a menu will find out. But I'm not surprised that he doesn't read her books, but he still has a level of respect and does for Jessica and her insightfulness and her wisdom and her logic. Sometimes he gets a little frustrated because she's doing too well or they are not on the same page, but he is respectful of her, which I appreciate. So now they're in... Uh, I guess like a warehouse or inside a, an area, a boat dock or something. They're inside at this point. And Grace admits that her father's death was not, no, I'm sorry. They're getting off the boat and they're, the girls are bringing their luggage so that they can stay at a local hotel. Jessica doesn't know that she says, oh my goodness, I, I've been so rude. Um, you guys can stay at my house. This, I'm sure this is so upsetting. And they say, and Lisa says, no, we have reservations at Hill House. We'll be fine, but thank you. Grace is the last one to get off the boat. And she admits that her father's death isn't, there's no love lost. Like, no one's really upset. She, she tells Jessica that their father broke up her marriage, that he meddles in Nan's love life, and he's turned Maggie into, quote, a dull house crowd. And none of them are sorry that he's dead. So now we're back at Jessica's house. And she gets a call from Letitia. Uh, and we'll hear from Letitia. We never meet her, but we'll hear from Letitia. She is a great asset to have for Jessica. She is with the phone company. And she tells Jessica, well, they're was a call from your house to Paris. Uh, and she tells her how much it is. And she's like, no problem. You know, I'll handle it. And she goes out back where she finds Ralph just listening to what looks like a high quality Walkman, you know, another hint that he's not a hobo uh, or living on the streets or working for his food in a hammock taking a nice little snooze, listening to what we find out is Mozart. And <laughs> he says, like, I did all the work that I could do without supply. So I figured I would just hang out and, and take a, a nap. So I'm still giving him a side eye. But okay, he only had limited access to supply. He says he did all that he could do. But you know, sir, this isn't a hotel. Get up. <laughs> you look real comfortable. So Jessica says, well, who were you calling in Paris, France? It must have been a short call. It was only $9.97. He says, no, I was calling Paris, Kentucky. I have a friend there who has a horse. And so there's some banter back and forth. And then we go inside and we find she tells him about the man who was swept, swept overboard. And um, he kind of just glosses over that and is showing her some places that uh, 
in her home that he could fix. He just needs some supply and it should only be a few dollars and he can do it. While they're talking, he sees a pipe and he picks it up. It's obviously very well crafted. And this is the first time that I really took a look at it. And it's very detailed. It's clearly from another country. Um, it looks like it might have been a dragon or something, if I, if I remember correctly. It was orange at the front and white along the pipe, the smoking part. And so it was very, very nice. And he picks it up and he's looking at it. He's like, oh, this is really high quality. This is really nice. This is beautiful. And Jessica starts to tear up because obviously it's Frank's pipe. We don't know how long her husband has been gone, but again, long enough for her to have written at least one and it, well, now at this point, at least two books, the one that's in pre-publication, as well as um, The Corpse Danced at Midnight and perhaps others at this point. But it's still, she still has it out probably exactly where he left it before he passed away. We don't know what he died of. I'm going to guess that it was some sort of disease because they're not that old. So, and there's never any talk of him having heart problems. So I'm, I'm thinking that maybe he was ill and passed away, but it's probably exactly where he left it. And she says, well, you know what, you can have it. You know, it's better that you smoke it in, as opposed to it collecting dust. And she she then, like, walks off. He he says, no, 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 no. But then he does accept it. And she walks off. I think it's a bit overwhelming for her because it's bringing up memories of, of Frank. And, you know, it's hard because it's still fresh no matter how long ago it was. This is a house that they built their life in. And it's probably been, like I said, the pipe's probably been sitting there since Frank last smoked it. So, you know, it was it was sad and it brought a realization that um, Frank will always, always, always have Jessica's heart and she's never going to move forward. She's never going to move past her deep love for Frank, which is really just beautiful, actually. So... Then we are out in a field and we see a helicopter landing and it's Lisa's husband. And at this point we find out once he is here and speaking with uh, everyone that the name of the uh, company that his father-in-law created is called the Mark of the Earl. And he is demanding an inquest. Now the sisters demanded an inquest into the death of their father. Now, Lisa's husband, Brian Shelby, uh, is demanding as well. I don't know if he thought that it was going to be different because he's a man and Amos is a man, that this would happen. I don't know. This guy is a jerk. He is definitely uh, a gold digger. So I don't know how the father didn't run him off. I guess he realized that whatever money the father was offering to pay to run him off, he was going to get much more than that being with Lisa. And maybe she was also rebelling against the father, seeing how he's messed up everybody else's relationship. But now she ended up with this lunatic. 
But my question, as well as, and then Amos said it, we can't have an inquest if we don't have a body. Like, he's been missing for, at most, 24 hours. At most. So we can't have an inquest without a body. We don't even know if he's dead, which I completely agree. So, and it also just lends to Amos's suspicion that why are you trying to get him declared dead? The only reason you're trying to rush and do this without even having a body is so that you can collect on the inheritance. Absolutely. You're correct, Amos. <laughs> so now we're back at Jessica's house. Ralph is actually smoking the pipe um, that Jessica, well, Frank's pipe. And she, you know, she's keeping a strong face. And I think she enjoys the company. And I think him smoking the pipe brings a level of familiarity. It brings back probably memories of sitting and talking with Frank as he was smoking the pipe. Probably the smell also brings back memories. So, you know, even though she's looking at a different face and she's not um, married to this person and doesn't have those type of feelings, she does have the comfort of Frank's presence in uh, this conversation. So um, at some point, Ralph is like, ah, you know what? I better get on my way. I got some stuff to do. I'm like, what you got to do? You're a hobo. But okay. <laughs> but she's not ready for him to go. Because like I said, I think she's enjoying the whole experience. This is someone she doesn't know. So she's getting to know them. But she still has that level of comfort that comes with um being close to something that Frank loved to do, which is smoking uh, a pipe. But he leaves. Jessica then goes back to washing the dishes, and she has an epiphany as she sees the water drain out. So she hurries down to the dock and to speak with Ethan, and she asks him for a map. She uses the map. She, I don't remember... <laughs> The name of the tool she used, I've been out of school for so long, I used to know, um, but she uses that to draw uh, a circle, which I'm guessing represents the storm, and she puts in the, she finds the latitude and longitude of where they were, and determines that they were in the eye of the storm at that time, at that latitude, longitude, um, on that day. So she then confronts the sisters about what she has discovered. So we're in the sheriff's office. She confronts the sisters. And at that point, um, she says, you guys were in the eye of the, the hurricane. So it would have been calm. There wouldn't have been any waves that could have knocked him off. And like I said, they, the story was so rehearsed, but because it didn't actually happen that way, the facts were incorrect. So Maggie confesses that she killed the father. Um, Amos asks for details, which is great because you, you guys are lying. I need specifics. So she said he actually died the night before the storm, that he was drunk, that they got into an argument. He was worse than ever. She got a gun out of her purse. Why she had a gun in her purse, we don't know. She says she vaguely remembers pulling out the gun and shooting at him twice. So, and then I guess it threw, it threw him overboard. The sisters 
found out and tried to cover for her. Now, you vaguely remember, but you actually remember, which I think is funny. Now, if she vaguely remembered, she would be like, I had a gun in my purse. Next thing I know, I'm standing over my father. He has two bullet holes in his chest and he's dead. I don't know what happened. That is vaguely remembering, not uh, specifically that I pulled out a gun and I shot him twice. Okay. Anyway, so when Lisa is talking, she's like, yeah, and like his pipe was still warm, you know, when we found him shot on deck, right? So this gives Jessica another epiphany, but she hasn't worked everything out. It's just another piece to the puzzle. So at this point, Maggie is arrested. Uh, while they're still there, no, I think they're on their way. They've left the precinct. And the newspaper man comes up and he's like, hot off the presses, here you go, about that um, accident that happened on the water. And Ethan's like, you got your facts wrong, man. He's like, I do not have my facts wrong. <laughs> How dare you? So they're like, no, he, was, he wasn't killed by fall. He didn't fall overboard and drowned. He was shot and killed. So Jessica looks at the newspaper. She sees the photo. She asks, like, where'd you get this photo? And he said, well, I went to the library and I got this off the jacket of a book he wrote about 20 years ago called um, something. I forget the name of it. It's horrible. I should have wrote that down. But it's basically about Stephen Earle, who is the father. Stephen Earle going from being an actor to being a getting into makeup and becoming a multimillionaire in the makeup industry. So Jessica then looks at the photo, and if as we look at the photo, we realize that this is a younger version of Ralph, okay? So she rushes home with Ethan. She's like, "I this guy isn't dead. He's not dead. She's going around her house calling, Ralph, Ralph, Ralph. Ethan doesn't believe her. He is undermining, and he's kind of condescending. I would have kicked him out. I wouldn't have brought him home to begin with. But she wants to prove her point. Once you saw that Ralph wasn't there and he made some condescending comment, I would have kicked him out of my house. But that's just me. Anyway, so Jessica explains what happened, how she met Ralph, and that Ralph is Stephen Earle. Ethan doesn't believe her. Um, and then he, the scene ends with Ethan not believing her, even though she's Jessica Beatrice Fletcher, detective extraordinaire, um, he doesn't believe her. The next scene is two kids playing on the beach, and the little girl goes over some rocks, and she sees a body washed up and screams. I think it's terrifying that they let two children find the dead body, but... You know, I'm sure there wasn't, obviously the actor wasn't dead. It was probably a mannequin or something like that. But how traumatizing to find a dead body while you're just out on the beach playing. The next scene is Lisa and Nan at the funeral home to make the ID. Um, they 
the uh, funeral home director lifts up the sheet and it is clearly Stephen Earl, who is clearly Ralph. Um, there's no way he was in the water for two days, not even a whole 24 hours. He looks pristine. Okay. He does not look like he has been in the water for long at all. So, uh, then the funeral director is trying to make a sale. I'm like, for one, sir, you are super creepy. And for two, this is inappropriate. Like, I understand you got to make your money, but goodness, they're just identified their father and they appear very upset. But didn't he die two days ago when your sister shot him? So why now suddenly are you so upset? Mm, put that in your head, right? So as they're coming out, uh, you see this car driving crazy and then up onto the sidewalk and out pops this guy and it's Terry, Nan's ex-boyfriend or ex-fiance. And he is like, oh, I heard it on the radio in Kentucky and I flew here immediately. Jessica's out here and she hears that and she's like, there is no way. That she knows there's she knows those flight schedules like the back of her hand, and she is suspicious. So she asks to go in to see the body, and she's like, I feel like I knew him, you know, etc. So she goes in, and the funeral director says, Doesn't he look peaceful? And Jessica turns to him and looks him dead in his face, and she says, No, he looks dead now. I thought she then said, and he looks very, he looks damn angry about it, which would have been hilarious, but she actually said, and I'm damn angry about, or I'm very angry about it. Sorry. I'm very angry about it. So she, because she knows he was Ralph and she knows that he was alive earlier the day before. And in her yard and with his Walkman on the hammock uh, with after smoking and then smoking Frank's pipe. Right. So she he was very much alive. Then the next scene is Lisa and her husband at the hotel in their room. And it's funny when they go outside, it looks like it's a green screen instead of actually outside. But that's just an aside. And this is when we really see that her husband is a dirtbag. He's like, okay, well, now Maggie's out the way. Um, Nan won't be a problem because she'll be in New York doing her fashion design stuff. So we just have to get rid of Grace. And so Lisa's like, what are you talking about? He's like, oh, no, no, no. I mean business. I mean business. And obviously, she, he was like, I don't, you thought I meant like killing them? And yes, I did. And she did. Because if Grace's husband was run off by the father, what makes you think that she doesn't want every single last cent her father has that is owed, due and owing to her? Because if my father ran my husband off and he had $100 million that I had to split, well, my sisters, I want my $25 million paid in full, okay? <laughs> immediately so Lisa knew that Lisa knew how upset Grace was with how their father treated them and how the father ran uh, Grace's husband off she knew that the only way you were going to get her to give her money up was to kill her 
but then her husband probably got it because it seems like they're still legally married so brian is out of his depth so now we're at the sheriff's office and we see that he has a female deputy we learn her name is emma later on and they confront maggie and she reveal and they tell her well your father was found washed up on the shore he's dead and she's like he can't be dead I'm like what are you talking about you said you killed him it's like no that was a lie this, this is what really happened now here we go with a new story she says that the father left on a concealed boat and a while after he left is when she fired the two shots that uh, the father, Stephen, was going to wait on shore and then show up when Terry got there so that they could expose him as a gold digger. And um, because what happened was the father paid Terry a half a million dollars to leave Nan alone. He took the money and he got out of town. But um, a few months before this, the father had a heart attack and he obviously survived, but it made him concerned that once he died, that um, Terry would come back around and get money from Nan to the point that he spent up her entire inheritance and then left her broke and heartbroken. So that's why he wanted to set this up. And Maggie ended up getting roped into this because she was the one who keeps the father's house. Um, she doesn't have a family of her own, relationships of her own, friends of her own, it appears. Her whole life revolves around taking care of her father and his household. So now Jessica is talking to Amos and she's like, listen, I don't believe that story either because, well, she says that makes sense. Maggie's story makes sense because I bet that that body has a pipe in the pocket. I bet the two bullets are not from Maggie's gun and he has not been in the water for two days. Now, Amos is like, well, we'll let the coroner decide that. So next thing we know, obviously, the coroner came back with all of those facts, and Maggie was cleared, and she was uh, released from jail. Now we see Nan and Terry at the cemetery, and Nan is clearly upset, and Terry's trying to talk to her about marriage. Uh, it's convenient that he forgot to tell Nan that her dad had given him half a million dollars. I don't know at what point that comes up, but it clearly hasn't. But she's in no place to discuss marriage at this point, and she walks away. At which point, Jessica comes up, and she tells Terry that, I know that you knew about Stephen Earle's death beforehand. And I bet that it's Stephen Earl who called you himself. He denies it, of course, like, no, 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 I didn't know. I caught the first plane. I heard it in Kentucky. And then he admits, I got a call from a reporter. It could have been Stephen Earl, but you know, he was a really great actor back in the day. And I flew in and to my surprise, Nan was at the airport waiting for me. 
and she told me that Maggie had told her about this whole plot and the fake death and that, um, you know, Maggie, I guess, wanted them to uh, be together. So that's why she told Nan so that she could go and meet Terry. And they spent the night together in Portland. And as he was leaving to go back to Kentucky, now believing that Stephen Earl had not, in fact, died, uh, that's when he heard on the radio about Stephen Earl's body being found and turned around and came back, came from Portland to Cabot Cove. So now we're in the sheriff's office and we see Emma again and she's cleaning off a shotgun. Um, and I don't know, I'm guessing she's also the 911 operator. I don't know if she goes out on calls or not, but uh, she's there. She refuses to tell Jessica where Amos is. She says things are a little too casual around this town. So I'm guessing she's not from Cabot Cove, but she, her, that accent makes me think that she's supposed to be from the New England area. But then she takes a phone call from one of the deputy sheriffs and she gives Jessica all the information she needs, where Amos is, why he's there, how long he's been there, what they found. <laughs> and Jessica makes sure she stays to get every last detail. And then she runs off with Emma saying, Jessica, Jessica, Jessica. Now you refuse to give her the information and then spoke loud enough for her to hear as if the sheriff's department's that big, but spoke loud enough for her to hear every single detail that she needed to know in order to go and find Amos. So the next scene is at the beach. My question is, now I understand that Ethan is a captain. He has a boat, he's down at the docks. He's very familiar down there but why is he there and Amos couldn't th didn't think to call Jessica she's the only one with sense in this conversation <laughs> but they tell her that they found a raft and they found a pair of pink shoes that one pair was missing a heel and she says uh she looks at the scene looks at the shoes and then goes walking over to the rocks they're trying to stop her she walks onto this pile of rocks and she finds the heel to the shoe. Now there's all these, this police personnel and fishermen and everything searching around. And she found it in less than five minutes of being there because she is the greatest detective in the world. So she says, not only do I know that these heels are, um, well, no, she identified the heels as belonging to Nan, which I don't know if we had any clues as to why she would think those were Nan's, but they are, in fact, um, Nan's. So they go to the hotel and Nan is looking for her pink pair of shoes. And she says, I know I packed them. I had planned to wear them on a specific day for a specific event. I know I packed them. I can't find them. I had them custom made for me. So Amos pulls out the pair of shoes and she says, yes, those are my shoes, but I wasn't at the beach last night. I, I didn't kill my father. So Jessica asked Nan to try on the shoe. And she says, but I know they're mine. Of course, they're going to fit. And she says, Jessica's like, just humor me because Jessica always has a plan. 
So we see Nan put on the shoe. Of course it fits. And Amos says, well, that's all I need. You're going into custody. So Jessica says, that's not enough. But on second thought, yes, take her into custody. But both of you have to promise that you will not tell anyone about this evidence. So fast forward to the sheriff's office. Now, Terry Jones comes bursting in. He says, I heard that you arrested Nan. That doesn't make any sense. Um, I was in Portland from 7.30 to 4 a.m. She was with me. Um, It's impossible that she killed her father that evening. Amos says, well, the coroner says she could have been killed as early as, I I think he said five or six, something to that effect. And you guys don't have an alibi until nine o'clock when you were seen at a restaurant. So both of you could have done this in order to kill the father. So you, she would get the inheritance and you two were in on it. Terry immediately throws her under the bus and says, well, you know what? She could have killed her father before she came to pick me up in Portland. I wouldn't know that. I had nothing to do with it. So Amos says, well, you know, since you made your way down here, I'll let you see her. And before he can even get the key ring out of his belt, Terry's like, no, that's fine. And runs out (laughs) for parts unknown. Amos then opens the door that leads to the cells and says, did you get all that? And Nan comes out looking dejected saying, I heard it. So I knew the whole time that Terry was a gold digger. As soon as I heard that he got $500,000, half a million dollars in order to leave Nan alone and he took the money, I knew he was a gold digger. But even worse so that he came back when he heard that Stephen Earl was dead. So it wasn't enough that you had this half a million dollars that you had didn't have to do anything for but that you were coming back to get more because now the father was out of the way and no longer an obstacle to convince nan that you were a gold digger he was a terrible person and i'm glad that she saw the light and got rid of him so now we're at the hotel and grace lisa maggie and brian lisa's husband are getting out of a taxi. They are obnoxiously loud. They're clearly drunk. Uh, Jessica comes up and she's talking to them. They're like, oh, we're celebrating. Why don't you celebrate with us? This is so great. It's interesting that they didn't realize that Nan wasn't with them. Uh, I don't know, maybe she doesn't drink. I, I don't know why she wouldn't have been part of this celebration. But Jessica says, um, Nan was arrested. Perhaps you should be concerned about your missing sister. <laughs> you, were cons- you were happy that Maggie got out of jail, but didn't know that Nan was nowhere to be found for hours or Terry for that matter. So anyway, they're like, Jessica tells them, well, they found the heel of a shoe in the rocks at the beach near where the Stephen Earl washed up on the beach but the shoes are missing. So um, Lisa says, well, does that mean that you want to search our rooms? 
And Jessica said, well, that would be great because I know how sisters are. They share stuff. So is it possible that one of you were actually wearing the shoes and not Nan? And so Lisa is offended and she says, you're not searching my room uh, without a warrant. Come on, Brian, let's go. So they go off to their room. Grace says, you can search my room, but, you know, I didn't, I wasn't wearing the shoes. Then after they leave, it's just Jessica and Maggie. And Maggie says, well, you can search my room, but Nan and I are not the same size and I don't wear pink shoes. Pause. Take that in. So (laughs) Jessica tells Maggie, well, the sheriff is going to be coming in the morning to do the searches you know, I'm really tired. I'm probably going to sleep in. So can you do me a favor and give him uh, this bag? And so it's a paper bag, which I'm guessing has the heel of the shoe in it, right? Gives it to Maggie to show that she doesn't, that Jessica doesn't have any suspicion of Maggie and bringing her in on, you know, hopefully, um, clearing her sister Nan's name, right? So now it's later on that evening, Jessica's house, we see the window, one of the window panels, glass panels in her front door break and a a gloved hand come in, unlock the door and open it. We then see two sneakers walking in and start up the stairs. And then suddenly the lamp turns on. Now, the first time I missed this, I had to rewind because I couldn't figure out why the person stopped and started to come back down the stairs. But on the, the rewind, I noticed that the lamp came on. The person walks down the stairs. Jessica says, well, that was very rude. Now I'm gonna have to get that glass replaced. And the camera pans from the sneakers all the way up to the face and we see it's Maggie Earl. Okay, she did it, spoiler. (laughs) So she is dressed all in black. She has a black hat, which I'm sure she, I don't know if it had a ski, if it was a ski mask type situation or just a black beanie, but she was prepared to do criminal stuff, (laughs) okay? Crime was afoot. So, Jessica tells her it was an obvious frame of Nan. Um, She had asked her, Nan, to try on the shoe. She knew it was going to fit, but she wanted to see the bottom of Nan's feet. And as we remember, Nan's feet were clean. There were no indentations. There were no cuts, bruises, or any, any indication that she had walked on a rocky beach without shoes on. So it could not have been her. Second, Nan didn't have an alibi because of Maggie. Maggie told Nan about the plot that uh, Maggie and Stephen Earl had so that Nan would go to the airport. She wouldn't have an alibi for the time it took her to get to the airport, the time she had to wait at the airport, and any time before she met up with Terry and then even at that point he's not necessarily a reliable alibi so until they were seen in person together by with um 
by witnesses, she didn't have an alibi. And whereas Nan and Terry thought that Maggie told because she wanted them to be together, it was actually to ensure that Nan did not have an alibi. So it was clear that Maggie took advantage of Stephen Earle's plot to fake his own death and made his uh, plan a reality. And we don't know how she obtained the other, a different gun in order to shoot him to ensure that the gun that she was found with was not the same gun used to kill him. And that by confessing the murder twice, uh, well, no, confessing the murder and then the murder plot, it would seem more believable that she did not kill him. It was to throw everybody off, but of course that was never going to throw Jessica off. So Maggie, of course, confesses. She says that she hated her father, that he never showed any of them love except Nan. That was his favorite. That was the only one that her father, the only daughter his the father cared about. And that she was forced to take care of his home. Her whole life revolved around keeping uh, Stephen Earle's home. So she was just upset about that. And this was her opportunity to get rid of him, frame Nan so she would go to prison. So get rid of her and see the demise, the death of someone that she's hated, I'm guessing the entirety of her life, and see the demise of someone who she's hated, I guess, since it was clear that Nan was the favorite. So then Maggie makes the mistake of thinking that she is now going to murder Jessica because no one else would have been able to figure out what she did. <laughs> like, I understand that Jessica's really perceptive and is very logical and figures things out easier and quicker than a lot of law enforcement, but she's not the, Amos was already suspicious. So I think eventually he would have come around and made this determination. But Maggie thinks like many of these killers do, if I get rid of the person who figured it out, I'm free and clear. So she says, Maggie says, don't worry. It'll be, people will think that a burglar came in, you caught them and there was a struggle and, you know. So Jessica is like, <laughs> okay, ma'am, clearly you don't know that we have no burglars in Cabot Cove. And second, I have the sheriff on the phone. She then moves the potted plant that she has on the table, showing the receiver of the phone, picks it up and says, while staring Maggie dead in the face, uh, Sheriff, well, Amos, did you get all that? I think you should get over here quick. There's someone who wants to tell you something. And then hands the phone to Maggie. Now, honestly, Jessica really was taking a chance here and we'll see in future episodes that she does not take the same chance. Again, she usually has the has law enforcement right there in the next room, two steps away. Um, 
hidden, but extremely close because she's taking a chance because Maggie has nothing to lose at this point. So she could have still killed Jessica. It's like a life sentence is a life sentence. I don't know. I don't think they had the death penalty in Maine then. Maybe they did. Probably not, though. So if if she was going to get life in prison for killing her father, what's another life sentence? You might as well kill this lady. So... (laughs) She had nothing to lose. So Jessica was taking a large, taking a really, really big chance. Again, this is the second official episode, but the third hour of the series. So clearly the protagonist can't be murdered, but she was still taking a big chance. (laughs) So now that was the end of it. Case file closed the killer has been captured the killer has confessed uh i wonder if she will take a plea or i wonder if jessica has ever had well she does have to testify in some later episodes but this would have been an interesting one because her statement was given to jessica her statement of admission was given to jessica so uh, which happens a lot So I think that would have been an interesting follow-up, Jessica having to testify on this case or any of these cases where the killer confesses directly to her and there's no other witnesses. Yes, Amos was on the phone, but it's very different to have someone who's listening in on the phone testify versus the person who was looking at the defendant in their face when they were making this confession to be able to testify that the person wasn't intimidated, that the person wasn't coerced, that there wasn't a gun to their head. All of these details that Amos would not be able to testify to, that Jessica would have to testify to, that this admission was completely voluntary, she would need to testify. I think that would be interesting to see her outwit um a defense attorney on cross-examination. We do get to see a little bit of that in I think two other episodes she has to testify. So we'll get to see that, not on this specific case, but we'll get to see Jessica Tangle with defense attorneys and a prosecutor or two or three or four. (laughs) So, okay, well, we are done for this week. Thank you once again for joining me on The Fletcher Files, a Murder, She Wrote podcast. Until next week, bye.